Richardson a hand as he comes to minister tonight. Bless you, brother. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Pastor, pastor started to call me John, which would be perfectly okay with me because that's what my mom and dad called me. Of course, you're the age, same age I am, but we're friends. So if I slip up this week and say, Brother Rick or Rick, it's not disrespectful, we're friends. But I want, I want to share with you something as an evangelist. I've had the privilege of preaching in over 1,400 revivals. Simply means that God has been gracious and merciful and gave me tenure. But I've learned, worked with a lot of pastors, a lot of first ladies. And I'm going to tell you something you already know. You have two of the finest, most gracious, kindest men and women they're always so kind and they're always so gracious and um, he was concerned about us last night because we got turned around in that construction in downtown St. Louis and there is a God there is a, and he's alive and well because we made it to the motel and we're here tonight but tonight is a miracle service so for just a moment, I'm going to do something that you got to do before every ministry, a miracle service. The enemy will always try to attack us mentally, spiritually, emotionally. So let's first of all say, praise be the Lord. Praise say, praise God, praise God for his mercy endureth forever. I, I, I'm doing it kind of in reverse, but just say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. for his mercy endureth forever. So when the enemy says you're not good enough to be healed, you, 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 God, you're praising God because his mercy endureth forever. And we got to quit remembering stuff that's been erased by the blood of the lamb. Praise God for his mercy endureth forever. Then I bind all principalities, all powers, all the rulers of the darkness, the things of this world, all spiritual wickedness in high places, in anything that would dare exalt itself against the knowledge of God, and I bind it in the name of Jesus, that name that's above all names. So that's the next thing you do. You bind all demonic forces. And then you, you go somewhere in the Bible and see where a great healing move took place. And I can't think of a better place to start than Acts chapter 4. How many know that these are perilous times in which we live? And the world would like to shut the church down and silence us. But they did that back in the New Testament. And they did this after Peter and John were persecuted. Persecuted for healing a sick man. Now it was the Lord that did the healing. There, I'm not saying that. But they, God used them to heal a man that had never walked. Everybody knew it. And even the people that didn't like him should have said, at least rejoice over what God had done. But they got persecuted, got slapped around a little bit, were commanded not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And I can just see Peter and John walking out of that room saying, if we can't preach and teach in the name of Jesus, then we ain't got nothing to preach or teach about. But when they went back to where the brethren had gathered and sisters had gathered, just like tonight, Many believe that Mary was one of those people in that room. They told them how the enemy attacked them, but they also bragged on what God had done. And they prayed a simple prayer. And they prayed, behold the threats of our enemies. 
and grant to thy servants with all boldness that we may preach thy word by stretching forth your hand to heal that signs and wonders would be done in the name of the holy child Jesus. And God must have liked that prayer because when they got done praying, God shook the house. Ain't it an interesting saints of God on the day of Pentecost that God filled the house. But when the persecution began, God's power showed up to the pain that had shook the house. So when the enemy attacks you, don't be dismayed. Don't be afraid. God's about to shake the house. God's about to do a mighty miracle. And then you read Acts chapter 5 and people are getting healed in miraculous ways. But tonight I have a very, very powerful message for you. Turn to somebody and say, don't give up. Don't give up. Turn to somebody near you to, to, to at least treat people. You don't know, you never know what that person going through you next. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Something awesome is about to happen to you. Something magnificent is about to happen to you. Now, it's going to sound just a little bit strange, but right now, would you just join me right now and praise God for a midnight miracle? Would you praise God for a midnight miracle? Would you praise God for midnight? Would you praise God for midnight? Saints of God, I've heard it said, and maybe you've said it before, how many of you ever had someone that you love going through something or maybe you were going through something? You said or maybe someone said it to you and you walked up to somebody and you meant well and you walked up to somebody going through a really difficult time and you said these words, you know, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. Now, now psychologically, that's really good and it makes you feel good, but in reality... That's just not true. I said that to somebody and God checked me and he says, John, what you just said wasn't really the truth. He didn't say I lied because I didn't do it on purpose, but I repeated something. Now, if you said it, it's okay. And it's okay to continue to say it. But literally speaking, the darkest hour isn't just before the dawn because just before the dawn, the sun's rays are already beginning to break the horizon way before you see the shape of the sun. So we say that, we mean well by it, and, there's, and please, everybody wave at me and say it's okay to continue to say it, it's all right, but the reality is, and this is a very powerful message from the master, and as I preach it, you're gonna say, Brother John, I know you didn't write that one. This is way above your pay grade. The reality is, the darkest hour isn't just before the dawn. Any, any deer hunters here besides me, if you're a deer hunter, raise your hand. Now, now, if you don't like deer hunters, don't get mad at me and, and, and stuff. I, I enjoy deer hunting. And God spoke to me when I said that to somebody. I said, don't you worry. The darkest hour is just before the dawn. And God said, you just told them it's truth. I said, well, no, I didn't, Lord. I, the dark, you know, everybody says that. It's got to be true. Everybody says it. And he says, well, well, John, you ought to know better. And then I got real interested. And I said, well, how should I know better, Lord? He said, you're a deer hunter. And he said, you get out in that woods about four o'clock in the morning, pitch black dark. You won't even turn on a flashlight because you don't want to spook a deer that's probably sleeping because got smart enough to lay up sleeping. 
You get to your tree stand, you climb up there, and you're shaking half to death for about two hours. But all of a sudden, you begin to notice you don't see the sun. You don't see any sign of the sun. But it starts getting lighter and lighter because although the physical sighting of the sun may be several minutes, maybe 30 minutes, an hour away, the rays of the sun already beginning to penetrate the darkness. And so it's already getting lighter, although you don't see the sun. Therefore, the darkest hour can't be just before the dawn. So when is the darkest hour? One would have to assume that the darkest hour has got to be midnight. Now, if you want to, and I believe, Pastor, the reason why God gave me this message, I believe that is both true physically and I believe that's true spiritually. And, and so the darkest hour has to be midnight. So when is actually the darkest hour of the entire year? I did some research and I found out the darkest hour of the entire year is midnight of midwinter during a new moon. That, that is when the part of the planet that you live on is its farthest distance from the sun. And the moon is reflecting no light whatsoever on the part of the earth in which you live. So that is the darkest hour would have to be midnight. And I believe that to be true both spiritually, I believe that to be true physically. And over the years, if you think about it, when you think about midnight, it's almost always associated with something scary, something gloom and doom. Why, did you know the doomsday clock? Did you know? Now, I'm not being political here. I'm really not being political. Somebody's going to think I'm being political, but I'm not. I got no dog in this fight. I know where my heart's at about how I vote and how I don't vote, and I don't tell people how to vote. But there's a certain person out there that, that's a politician that's quite famous that is assuring all of us that the world's going to end in 12 years. Well, um, I got some news for her. The world could end for you and I in about a second when that trumpet of God sounds and a dead in Christ rise, and that's fine with me. Now, understand something. I am not, I, there's a lot of things about this young lady that I disagree with, but I, I'm, not, I'm not going against her I'm not trying to make her look bad about what she's saying there. I disagree with her socialist stance because my dad spent five years in Europe fighting a guy named Hitler who was the head of the socialists and had three purple hearts. So I got this thing about socialism, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this young lady. Why, why 12 years? Have you ever wondered why 12 years? Because the, I don't know who these people are. I don't, I don't know even where they live. But if you've ever seen them, it's like, you know, the Mad Hatter and all that. Um, the, the doomsday clock has already been set. And whoever does the setting and tells us how it works, which I'm not sure who they are, has said that the doomsday clock, that the last day of the world, or the last day where it, all of it's going to come to an end, at two minutes to midnight in 2030, which would be about 12 years from now. 
So somebody hears this, they go running with it with no science to back it all up. I, you know, nothing that, that to even come close to supporting it. And, and so, so that's where I think she gets that idea. What I'm trying to say, however, is even the people as misinformed as they are that are in charge of the doomsday clock say doomsday is going to happen at midnight. And when people think and associate the hour of midnight, they tend to think, when you think about midnight, it, it, it usually brings with it negative thoughts, negative emotions. How many parents do we have here tonight? How many grandparents do we have here tonight? How many of you ever had your child out a little bit later than expected? Let me see your hands. Now, I know the answer to this question. How many of y'all know that nothing, I mean nothing, good happens after midnight? Nothing good happens after midnight. And when you hear, when you, when, when you hear people talk about somebody going through a really tough time in their life, it's not unusual to hear people say that that person is going through their what? Their midnight hour. When you hear the word midnight mentioned, it almost always is connected with some kind of gloom or doom or something bad or something terrible or something dark and horrible. But did you ever stop to consider that at the stroke of midnight, a brand new day begins. It don't matter how bad your day was. At the stroke of midnight, a brand new day begins with all kinds of endless possibilities. Now I know why all these people gather in New York and Chicago and every major city all across the world on December 31st. And they're casting from every country, every major city. But Dick Clark was always in New York when the ball dropped. And a bunch of people who are normally fairly sane are, are, are outside, sometimes below zero outside, kissing total strangers. People don't even know. And at the... December 31st, at the stroke of midnight, people just start going crazy and celebrating and kissing total strangers. Now, I don't condone the behavior of the drinking and the drugs and all the other stuff, but I understand the mindset that's behind it. I understand that the mindset is for a lot of people on December 31st coming as it gets closer to midnight and they start counting 10, 9, 8. A lot of those people have had a pretty bad year and had a pretty rough year and they're ready for that year to end and a new year to begin and they begin to celebrate like that. Not that I don't condone the way they do it, but they celebrate and the thinking behind it is correct that this is a brand new year at the stroke of midnight a brand new year begins with endless possibilities there's no telling what God's going to do I know one thing it would please God tremendously to make 2019 and beyond the most blessed years of your life but I guess give the Lord a hand clap of praise 
But I've also noticed something else. I looked up out of curiosity, like this morning. I just looked a word up to find out what the seventh month was. I found out it was April 17th. I, so we knew the one thing that happened. Then my Bible said, turn to this page. And I went there, I said, huh. Then the Bible said, there, turn to this page. So I, I just followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I got curious about the hour of midnight. And I discovered when I looked it up that midnight is mentioned 14 times in the word of God. That midnight is mentioned more than any other hour by far in the Bible. And then as I begin to, obviously at that point, look up the 14 places the word midnight appears, I begin to discover something. That God did some of his most magnificent miracles at midnight. Now, why did God choose midnight to do all these magnificent miracles? Perhaps to say to you and I, I really believe this with all my heart that no matter how dark your life is right now, no matter how bad the situation is right now in your life, you may not see any light at the end of that tunnel, but I've come to tell you tonight that we serve the God of the midnight miracle. Praise him right now. Praise God for the midnight miracle. Did you know that God set an entire nation of over 2 million people free at the stroke of midnight. Man, can I say something again? Can I say something again? I guess I can, I got the mic. I, can I say something again? I really honestly believe that God chose midnight to do some of his greatest miracles because he knew that you and I, all of us, would go through those times in our lives where we feel cut off, where it feels like it's so dark that we can't go on a moment longer. We go through those midnight times and things start looking hopeless, but I've come to remind you tonight that we serve the God of the midnight miracle. Did you know, did you know that at midnight, God breaks the yokes of bondage? In Exodus chapter 11, and give the PowerPoint poison a tremendous hand back there for helping us out. I think for helping us out tonight, isn't it a lot easier to follow it up here than having to try to read your little cell phone or flipping through your Bible. I'll be preaching from the King James. Exodus chapter 11, voice four and voice five. Do we got it? There we go. And I like they got in the front and the back. Because that way I'm not glued to this pulpit. And Moses said, I like it. How many preachers in the room? How many here have ever preached or taught the word of God? Let me see your hands. Don't you love it when God gives you something that has thus saith the Lord in it. Yes, yes. Because when you just repeat what God said and God said it, thus saith the Lord, that when God gives me a message for that, that's like saying sing him to a dog. For me, that is. And Moses said, thus saith the Lord about midnight. Now Moses says about midnight because he's heard from the Lord and he's trying to share with the people what God told him. He said, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Now, notice that this is not Moses going out. It's God going out. 
Very important we understand this. Notice the next verse, if you please. This is really going to help somebody. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservants that is behind the mill, the slaves. I mean, what's a slave got to do with this? But yet the firstborn of the slave. And of all the firstborn, even of the beast. Now leave that up for a minute. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever read the Bible? And it just, in, when you, particularly when you compare the New Testament, the Old Testament. And God sometimes comes across, not just a little bit, just a tad bit harsh. When you read the Old Testament and you see God whacking thousands of people, drowning an entire army in the Red Sea, you know, he just comes across as just a tad bit harsh. And, 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 and come on, let me see. Did you ever think that? And, and how many of you have ever had someone say to you, well, if your God's so good and, you're, and your God loves everybody, how come he whacked all those people in Egypt? How come every time we're reading in the Bible, he's whacking somebody? Well, let me tell you something. Every time God did that in the Old Testament, it was always to protect his children. Let me ask you a question. As a parent, if your child was being attacked by somebody, would you use any means possible to save your child's life? I'm going to ask you as a grandparent, if somebody was trying to kill your grandchild, would you use any means possible, even if it meant killing that person, to stop them from hurting your grandchild? Was so what makes us think that our heavenly father would do less to protect his children? And whenever God did it, they pose a great threat to his children. Now, I know it's hoiky-joiky, but in this case, it's, and, and, I, and God told me to do this so you can share it with your friends when they ask you this question. God does not need to justify himself to anybody. God doesn't have to get my approval or anyone's approval to do what he's going to do. Now, he needs my faith to operate in my life. But God doesn't have to explain himself to us or to anyone else. But occasionally, so that we can be better witnesses to other, God will come and explain something he did so people can understand. If you read this story at first, well, let's read Chapter 12, verse 29 and 30. And you really see what I'm talking about. Chapter 12, verse 29 and 30 of the book of Exodus. Did I give that to you? And it came to pass, well, of course it did. Jesus, thus saith the Lord. Whenever God gives you a thus saith the Lord, you can know it's going to come to, if you receive it. If you receive it. That at midnight, the Lord smote all the Lord. The Lord did. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat upon his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, even the inmates, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Notice voice number 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants, 
and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in the land of Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Imagine two to three million people. If there's two or three million Jews leaving, there's got to be two or three million Egyptians living there in Egypt. And can you imagine the sound of that when they came to awareness that there was a dead person in every single household? Can you imagine the crying and the weeping and the wailing that must have been heard for a long way off? Oh, saints of God, that's why men of God will say from time to time and we say in love it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God but bear with me but if you think about this story God not only has the right to do it because these are his children but he is every bit justified because if you go 80 years in the past when the Pharaoh then knew a deliverer was born somewhere amongst the Jews. He didn't know who, he didn't know exactly the person, but he knew that baby was out there somewhere. And what did he do? He killed the firstborn in every Israeli home. Therefore, God says, you killed the firstborn of my children, and now I'm gonna kill the firstborn of your children. This, this is tick for tack. So God only did exactly to them what they had done to his children so they wouldn't do it anymore. But you want to see a great picture of God's grace and mercy? Although God was just doing tick for tack what Egypt had done to his children, do you realize had Pharaoh let God's people go, had Pharaoh done what Moses and Aaron told him to do, God would have showed him mercy and none of his people would have perished. That's the kind of God that we serve. But at midnight, God set an entire nation free. It's hoiky-joiky. But how many of you want a midnight miracle? God confirms his word with signs following. The gates of hell are shaken at midnight. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you before I read this to you that this is one of the most confusing places to me in the entire Bible because it's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. But I have to read it to you because God shakes the, the gates of hell are shaken at midnight. In Judges chapter 16, verse 1 through verse 3. Now this is a really odd story in the, in the Bible. See, Israel, the, the Gazarites are Israel's arch enemies. They don't want to defeat Israel they are not going to be satisfied till they wipe out every single Israeli in the world. Just like many nations right now want to do that to Israel. They want it, the, the Gazarites will not be satisfied till there's no longer a nation of Israel. Now, Samson is the judge that God rolls up to spiritually lead Israel, plus be their champion. Now, there's a city called Gaza. Now, the, and Samson went to Gaza. The word Gaza means a fortified place. In other words, the Gazarites were a very militant people. And the headquarters of their military was in the city of Gaza. So this is no ordinary city. 
This is a fortress city. Now, how many of you know that when you have a fortified city where the vast majority of your soldiers live inside those walls, that the gates coming in that city are massive. They're, they're huge. I never gave any thought to this, but these are big tons, perhaps several tons of metal and dug in. These are enormous gates because the entire safety of their army depended on the security that these gates offered. I've never given this much thought before, but these are heavy, enormous gates. But here we have God's champion, the man of God that God has anointed to be the champion, the judge of Israel. And what does he do? And Samson went to Gaza. I want to ask you a question. Anybody here ever served in the military? Raise your hands. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you for your service. Thank you for... And I'm, I'm not going to be off color, but how many of you from your military experience, you were a Christian, you didn't participate, but you could testify where there are military bases. There are bars all over the place around that military base. I mean, if there's a military base, there's going to be bars everywhere because when soldiers get a little fearful, they're going to head to the nearest, if they're not a Christian, to the nearest bar. And I'm not being in bad taste and the children, the little children went out, but anybody that has any knowledge of military bases knows it may be discreet, but there are houses of ill repute all around those places. There's a lot of red light districts there because they know the soldiers are there and when they get leave, I'm not being vulgar. Now Gaza is a godless nation that does not serve Jehovah. This is their military fortress city, the strongest fortress city that they have. So there's all kinds of women, houses of ill repute all around this city. And in fact, the most famous prostitutes of the day were found here. I'm trying to point, paint a picture here that makes, us, makes me real uncomfortable talking about it, and it's got to be hard to hear. But this man got up and went deliberately. He didn't end up in Gaza by accident. This is, when he walked into Gaza, he walked in to, behind enemy's lines with no support. He got up deliberately to go to Gaza because Gaza was famous for something. And since, and then when, does this, does this blow your mind? And Samson went to Gaza and saw there a harlot. Well, that's what he went to find. And he went in on her. Now, guys, this is an ugly story. The only story that is uglier than this in the Bible to me is King David and Uriah. You know, the, the, the Bible, even in the New Testament, it's so distasteful, it refers to it as the matter of Uriah. We can't even talk about this. And you think about David and Uriah going to war together, fighting side by side. The times that David saved Uriah's life, the times that Uriah saved David's life. 
when Uriah would come home from battle and get some R&R, he loved the king so much that if the king was in Jerusalem, he wouldn't even go to his house. He would sleep on the man's stairs to protect his king. But this man is the one that David has an affair with his wife. And then he might as well pull the trigger himself, has him set on the front line, then pulls everybody back and leaves him out there by himself, knowing that he's going to be killed. Now, saints of God, why would God allow that to even be in the Bible? It tells us a couple things. Just without God, without the goodness of God, without his righteousness, I'd be a filthy, dirty rag. It is God in our life that makes us good people. It's God in our lives that make us righteous. And it shows the human depravity of the human spirit. Even a man like David, when he doesn't have God in his life, when you don't have God in your life, if the devil catches you at a weak moment, there's no telling what you might do. Am I telling the truth so far? Listen to what I'm saying. But also, I believe God put it in the Bible so that when we look at the horribleness of the cross and we see Jesus hanging on that cross, we know now why it was so bad. We know why it was so horrible because the cross would even cover the sin of something like what King David did. And saints of God, maybe, just maybe, God showed David mercy because God is not looking at what you are right now. God is looking at what he's going to make you. And he saw the kind of man David was going to become. That's just my view on it. Let's go back to Judges real quick. Chapter, chapter 16, verse 2. The God of the midnight miracle. And it was told the Gazrites, saying, Samson's come hither. And they compassed him in and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city. And were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it is day, we shall kill him. Notice the next verse, if you please. And Samson lay to when? And Samson lay to midnight and arose at midnight and took the doors of the gates of the city and the two posts, no doubt at least several hundred pounds, perhaps tons because this is a fortress, gates of the city and the two posts and went away with them bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders and carry them up to the top of, the, of, a, of, the, of a, a hill that is before Hebron. You see, the devil was saying, we got him now. He's committing sin. He's behind the enemy's lines. He'd done it all to himself. We got him. He's a dead duck. He's through. Samson ain't going to breathe another breath in the morning. He's going to die. You see, but the devil did something that he often does. He forgot about the God of the midnight miracle. He forgot about the God of the midnight mercy. I said he forgot about the God of the midnight mercy and the midnight miracle because saints of God, the only reason why Samson lived to see another day is we serve a God of the midnight mercy. We serve a God of the midnight miracle. 
I said that to say this to you. Maybe you messed up in the past. Maybe you did something that was terrible in the past and you're suffering from it right now. God doesn't want you to suffer from that any longer. He's the God of a midnight miracle. He's the God of a midnight mercy. I'll tell you something else that happens at midnight. Are you enjoying this? New seasons are birthed at midnight. All you ladies say, Brother John, we love you in the Lord. This ladies, this one's for you. In Ruth chapter three, verse 60 verse, baby girl. I'm talking about, there's something in the Bible for everybody. If you're like me and you're a John Wayne fan and you like a good shoot em up, there's wars in the Bible. If you want to see a hero, just go to the cross. There you go. Ain't no bigger hero. Ladies, if you want romance, there's, you want poetry, there's a whole book of poetry. You want song, and I could go on and on. If you want to know what's going to happen in the future, just go to the book of Revelations. But oh, this book here, what a romance story. I'm of Italian descent, so I, I got a romantic nature. And it says, and she went down onto the floor. Now, I want to say something. I've heard this taught a lot of ways, Brother, brother Ensley. And I'm going to just say what I believe, and I believe you believe the same. There are some people who said that something very immoral happened here. It didn't. That something very impure happened here. It didn't. What this woman did was symbolic. Any man that would see this would know that this woman was asking her to redeem her. See, it's through the book of Ruth that we learn about the plan of redemption. And we get revelations about the plan of redemption that we could never get without the book of Ruth because it shows us things that we would miss. So this beautiful, beautiful love story about the law of kinsman redeemer. God in his foresight said, I've got to show redemption in the Old Testament so my people can understand it better in the New Testament. I've got to explain my plan of redemption. Plus I have enough foresight to see that people sometimes are going to go through tough places in life where they're liable to go through a series of illnesses or, or there could be famines or wars and have to sell their inheritance. And it's no fault of their own. And should that happen, I want to put a law in place that their stuff and their inheritance can be redeemed. So he put into place a law called the law of kinsman redeemer. But in order for someone to redeem your stuff back, should you have to sell it through hard times, first of all, they had to be blood kin. They had to be your closest blood kin. Turn to somebody and say, it's hoiky-joiky. Now listen to this. They had to want to. They had to want to. How many of you have loved ones? How, come on, we all got one of these loved ones in our family. How many of you got a loved one in your family? And if they're sitting next to you, don't raise. How many of you got, no, they're not. How many of you got a loved one in your family that they constantly come to you telling you what they're going to do? You beg them not to do it because you say it ain't going to end well. And then it don't end well. And then they come to you and they want you to pay for it. And you know what we do? You know, 
Blood's thicker than green. <laughs> you know? I, I, sometimes you just got to quit enabling. But my time, you know what I'm saying. I'm, try, I'm just trying to be real. And so in order to be a kinsman redeemer, you have to be blood kin. You have to be the closest blood kin to that person. You have to want to. You could not be forced to do it. And thirdly, you had to have the means. Well, in the wonderful story of Ruth, we have the entire story of kinsman redeemer. It shows us, and and Jesus, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, what a wonderful miracle. His father is the Holy Ghost. She conceives by the power of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, Jesus, everybody write this down as a note. Jesus is born in a human body. Therefore, he becomes kin to the human race. But you see, in order to redeem somebody, you got to be kin to both ends. So he's the only begotten son of the father, and he is the son of man when he's born. By, not, not, I know it's hoiky-joiky, but please bear with me. So, we, so when Jesus was born in earth and body, now he becomes our closest kin with God. He becomes the closest kin with man. Both he's God in man. Does he want to redeem us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Does he have the means to redeem me? Yes, he does. The blood, come on, are you enjoying this? Are you, I know it's hooky joiky but please bear with me because you're about to get your socks blessed off. If you're, how many need a midnight miracle? How many know there's different? New seasons are birth at midnight. In Ruth chapter three, voice six through voice nine. And she went and laid down onto the floor and did according to all that her mother mother-in-law Naomi at law mother-in-law had bade her she told her about the law of kinsman redeemer her husband her son is dead now uh, Ruth's husband is dead but they were kin direct kin to a man by the name of Boaz and when Boaz had eaten and drunk now y'all Boaz didn't get loaded how many of you just celebrated Thanksgiving did you do a bunch of eating did you do a lot of drinking of iced tea, lemonade, sodies? You didn't get loaded. So people try to say that Boaz got all drunk and all that. No, he didn't. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He wasn't married because he got lit. He was married because he just found out he was rich. He got, he was, hey, if you found out that you had all the money you needed to pay all your bills for the next year, would you get married? Would you get happy? Would you get excited? I sure would. Uh, come on now. And Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn and she came softly. Ruth did. Busy's tired. He'd been working all day. And he uncovered his, his, she uncovered his feet and laid her down. I love you so much, Boaz, that I'm going to be your comforter. I'm going to keep your feet warm. This is the lowest act of servanthood that you could imagine. I'm gonna, my job is to keep your feet warm. But listen, it gets even better. And it came to pass when? New seasons are birthed at men. This is an important moment for you and I. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid. 
and turned himself and looked and behold a woman laid at his feet but it's dark so he doesn't know who it is and notice the next verse and he said who art thou and she answered I am Ruth thy handmaiden spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaiden for thou art a near kinsman nothing immoral happened here nothing happened between her and Boaz till they got married so we know that Boaz is the near kinsman there's only one problem there's one kinsman that's closer kin than Boaz is so he goes to that nearer kinsman and said, Ruth wants me, to, wants me to redeem her to bring seed to her dead husband. But, you know, I know you're closer kin to her. Do you want to marry her? And the man says, uh-uh, uh-uh. I already got a wife and two wives in the same house is not a good idea. I'll pass on this. How many know two wives in the same house is not a good idea? He said, this ain't going to work, so you, you can marry her, Boaz. So we know that Boaz now is her closest kin that can legally redeem her. Did he want to? Well, when he was out in the field a few days before, he was looking across there and he said, who's that? She caught his eye. See, God ain't going to make you be chained down to somebody that you don't love. You're going to fall in love with him, you know, and stay in love with him, see? So he saw her and he said, who is that? And they told her all the story, how she was faithful and said you, to Naomi, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. You leaving, I'm going with you. Wherever you go, I go. And he was so impressed by it. He said, oh, let her glean amongst the sheaves. See, when you cut in wheat, they laid this, these big tarp out and you cut a sheet of wheat, a sheaves of wheat, and you shake it like this as hard as you could. You could shake out all the wheat you could. And then there may be one or two kernels hung up in there, but you couldn't work all day getting out. So you discard it and started the next full one. And then the people that were poor would come behind you and would take those scraps and they would have to work harder than you did just to get two or three pieces of wheat out of that. Do you know how long it would take just to get a bowl of wheat? But Boaz looked at her and said, you know what? I don't want her just to be allowed to glean. Oh, and by the way, nobody, nobody touched that girl. Nobody, you don't touch her. I, don't you, don't you touch her. And he said, and I want you to let her glean amongst the sheaves. You let her go and glean again the stuff that ain't even cut down yet. You let her pick which she she wants to glean from. So she's gleaning like crazy and the wheat's piling up and Boaz is so in love with her. He says, you know what? I want to do one better than that. As she goes along gleaning wheat in the field, I want you to reach in your bag, grab handfuls of wheat, and lay them in her path. Lay, lay handfuls of blessing in her path and do it on purpose. I want you to lay handfuls of blessing in her path and do it on purpose. So can you imagine little Ruth coming along and she's gleaning, she's all excited, she's gleaning amongst the stuff that ain't been gleaned through yet, and she takes a step and there's a big old pile of wheat. And she don't have to do nothing but pick it up. Then there's another pile of wheat. Aren't you glad you serve a God that's constantly leaving blessing at the, come on somebody. Aren't you glad? This is a midnight miracle. So we know that he wanted to. He's already in love with her. And we know that he had the means 
because he was very rich. Now, what's this got to do with you and me tonight? Remember what I said earlier? In order for man, for God to redeem mankind, somehow God would have to become kin to man. So the Virgin Mary conceives of the Holy Ghost and Jesus is born God in a human body. Now he can legally redeem everybody he's kin to. The only problem is his mama was a Jew. So the only people he could legally redeem were Jews. Now, let me to make it simple. If you weren't a Jew, everyone else was a Gentile. So all the rest of the world's Gentiles and the only one Jesus could legally redeem because his mother Mary was a Jew was those that were Jews. However, you see, Ruth and Boaz got married and they had a bouncing baby boy and his name was Obed. And Obed got married and they had a bouncy baby boy. Come on, someone. I'm preaching way above my pay grade. And his name was Jesse. And Jesse got married and he had a baby boy and his name was David. And when David was born into the world, he was one eighth Moabite. Jesus is of the seed of David. And because of this midnight miracle, Jesus has Gentile in his bloodline because David was one eighth Gentile. And you and I can be redeemed. I'm talking about a midnight miracle. I'm talking about a midnight miracle. I know it's herky-joiky. How many believe that the Lord's fixing to come back? How many believe that we're in the 11th hour? How many believe that? Matthew 25, verse 6. How about this midnight miracle? Matthew 25, voice number 6. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Let us go out to meet him. Do you know why we're having this revival? The bridegroom is coming. The Lord is coming. Let us. <laughs> I know it's hoiky-joiky. <clears throat> But I'm going to skip Acts 27. I'll bring that up later this week. But let me tell you. I'm going to go to Acts chapter 16. God shakes the prison bars and sets men free at midnight. Now, before I preach this part, how many are ready for your midnight miracle? Over and over again. But before I do this, I'm going to say something. And I give God all the glory. Not this year, but last year. 30 days to the day that I had major neck reconstruction from vertebrae 2 through vertebrae 7. I'm in India on a mission trip. And one night at 2 o'clock, in India, it's illegal to carry a Bible out in public. I didn't know that, so I was carrying mine out in public. Then I had to carry it in a paper bag. And if you did any public ministry, we were training pastors how to have home churches, house churches. If you did any public ministry, you had to be very, very careful. But in Delhi, in Mumbai, and, and Hyderabad, and, and Rachi, which was the four cities I went to, and they all had at least 22 million people living in them. They had these big, huge slums. I'm talking I, I, huge, huge, huge slums 
square mile. I'm talking as far as you could see. And people just sleeping in doit and maybe a stick and a little rag on top of it. And so we, we had to wait, Pastor, to 2 o'clock in the morning because if we did it during the day, the, the, the police would catch us and we would go to prison. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, we go to the slum, 2 a.m. We're going to walk out there amongst thousands of people. And if they want to, we're just going to disappear. The driver took us to the slum. He said, this is as far as I'm going. So me and this other guy walks in, and he's about this big. And they're calling me grandfather because they, people, the life expectancy of a man there is about 50 years old, so I'm 62, so I'm grandfather. And I'm walking through here. And as I'm walking through this slum to try to bring Jesus to these people, there's this pot of stuff cooking that you wouldn't feed the hog. The stench was just unbearable, the smell of it. But that's what this whole slum lived on. This, I want you to know about the power that God's about to release into your life. I'm the least of God's servant, but I'm a servant of the most high God. I'm walking through this slum and pastor, all of a sudden, a woman comes running at me with a knife. I don't know what she's saying in Hindi, but every so often she spoke some English and she said, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. And she comes running at me with this knife, two o'clock in the morning, in the middle of the slum that I'll never be seen again. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I just looked at her. And I said, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And she hit the ground like a brick and she got up saved. She hit the ground like a brick and she got up saved. I went a little farther. Someone else came at me with what used to be a pot, a pot that was broken half, screaming that he was going to kill me. And I said, in the name of Jesus, I got the name of Jesus out. He hit the ground like a lead balloon, got up safe. And it happened over and over and over again all night long. We as Americans have forgotten the power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. Now, this is what God's going to do with the church right here in Farmington, your church in Farmington. In Acts chapter 16, verse 26, 23 through 26, if you want a midnight miracle, give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. In Acts chapter 16, verse 23, and when they had laid many stripes upon him, Paul and Silas, they beat him from the top of their head to the soles of their feet. Their back is laid wide open. Hunks of flesh have been ripped off their bodies. Muscles and tendons have been ripped off. Their, they're, they're just a bloody mess. I want to describe this correctly. And they cast them into prison, charging a jailer to keep them safely. Now, saints of God, I've been in some third world prisons. In fact, my wife can tell you that's where most of my ministry is in Africa and India is I go to the prisons. And third world prisons ain't anything like our prisons. They may have a concrete floor, but most of the time it's doit. Just hard as a rock doit. Most of the time they don't even have a blanket to lay on. There's no toilets. There's no toilet paper. There's no deodorant. There's no toothpaste. When they go to the bathroom, they just walk out in the yard. And it's like being on a feedlot, you know, that the hills might build up over time from all the cattle. 
And just layer and layer of human waste. This is where they live. And you can see the men, the, the, young, the young boys, and you, you can see by the horror in their eyes, you know what's happening to them. See, what I'm saying to you is I've seen some third world prisons. And, and it gave me a new appreciation for the Bible because these are the kind of prisons the saints of old were in. This was the kind of prison John the Baptist was in. This was the kind of prison that Paul was put in. This was the kind of prison that the saints of God. And when they had laid many stripes, their beat to a bloody pup. Listen to this. It's hoiky-joiky, but bear with me. I promise you, it's time for your midnight miracle. Notice voice 20. God shakes the gates, the bars, and sets men free at midnight. Notice verse 20. You're about to get a miracle. Verse 24, and who having received such a charge, he thrust them, threw them head first into it, into the inner prison. You know what the inner prison is? In Bible days, they didn't have flush toilets. So when the prisoners would go, they would go in these trenches, and every so often the guards or some of the slaves, the prisoners, trustees, would run, run water down these trenches, and, the, and they would go downhill. Water always goes downhill, and they would run the waste, the mess downhill into a place called the inner prison. In other words, the septic tank. Paul and Silas, someone hear me because you're about to get a miracle. Paul and Silas are beat to a bloody pulp and they're sitting in a septic tank. Who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in stocks. They're sitting waist deep in human waste. Their feet are chained to the walls and the floor. They're in the dark because it's midnight. So you know what's going on. Where there's human waste, there's roaches. There's all kinds of critters. And they're crawling all over them. They can't get away. They can't move because they're chained to the floor. Well, wherever the critters are, do you know what eats critters? Spiders. So you got all these, and I'm talking, when you go to Africa and stuff, I'm talking roaches, roaches. I'm talking roaches that you could saddle up. No, not quite that much. Listen to this. So they got all these bugs crawling on them. Then spiders crawling all over them to eat the roaches. Sitting in a septic tank. Somebody's about to get a miracle because you're going to say, you know what? I'm breaking through tonight. And at midnight. You're going to have to give me a few minutes because I got to tie this together. And you're going to really, because some of y'all have been going through pure hell lately. The last year or so, some of you have had some of the most difficult times of your life. And I'll tell you what's fixing to happen. Fixing to happen is this whole county's fixing to get saved. This whole area's fixing to get saved. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. Huh? Beat to a bloody pulp, sitting in a septic tank in midnight pitch black, dark, bugs and spiders crawling all over. I know what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And then they started praise, saying praises unto God and the prisoners hoid them. 
All the inmates, listen to this. This gets really cool. How many give me five minutes to change your world forever? Please, just five minutes. Five, come on, five minutes. If you'll give me five minutes, raise your hand. So we'll give you five. Because more took place here than you will ever, ever know unless I tell you. Verse 26. And suddenly, how many want to suddenly? How many, how many want to suddenly? Anybody want to suddenly tonight? Suddenly cancer's gone. Suddenly diabetes is gone. Suddenly that pain's gone. Suddenly my fears are gone. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. You know the story. The jailer's about to whack himself, but he doesn't whack himself because Paul said, don't worry, nobody's escaped, we're all here. Why didn't the prisoners escape? Because they just saw such a move of God, they'd rather stay in prison where God was than to leave prison without God. That means that Paul and Silas, who were already saved, and the prisoners got saved, the jailer got saved, his family got saved. Can I get a witness all from this midnight mirror? But wait a minute. What you don't understand is Paul's in prison in a place called Philippi. And Philippi is in Asia Minor and is the most ungodly place in the entire. Let me say that again. It is the most ungodly place in the entire Roman Empire. All kinds of immorality was practiced. All kinds of perversion was practiced. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, every kind of demonic worship that you could imagine was being practiced in this city of about 250 people, 50,000 people called Philippi. It was so wicked that the Roman Empire who controlled Philippi in Asia Minor, when people want to go do something wicked or experience demonic spirits or get involved in that kind, go and do something ridiculously sinful, you know where they would go on vacation? They would go to Philippi because that was the place where anything goes and everything went. It was the most ungodly place on the entire planet Earth. But Pastor after this midnight miracle, within weeks, revival broke out in Philippi when the inmates told him what happened at midnight, when the jailer told him what happened at midnight. Philippi is the location of the first mega church in the entire Bible, and it was founded in the most wicked place in the entire Roman Empire. Why? Because God did a midnight miracle. I said, Now, how many are ready? How many are ready for a midnight miracle? If you're ready for a midnight miracle, all you've got to do is what Paul and Silas did. God told me to tell you, he's already heard your prayer. He's done heard your prayer. He heard you pray many, many times about this. But now God said, it's time for you to come forward boldly and begin to praise God in the midnight hour to those prison bars begin to shake. To your children go free. To the prison bars fly open and the chains come off until there's a revival that breaks out in Farmington all the way to St. Louis. Right now, if you want a midnight miracle, come, don't, 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 
Don't grieve the Holy Ghost. Stand to your feet right now. Stand to your feet right now and run to this altar and begin to praise God. Begin to praise God. Begin to praise God. Begin to praise God for the salvation of your family. Praise God for your healing. Praise God for your midnight miracle. Praise God. Begin to praise God. Begin to praise God. Everybody come. Everybody come. Everybody come. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Just begin to praise. Worship team, come. Hurry, hurry. Saints of God, please. They prayed, then they praised. They prayed, then they praised. They prayed, then they praised. Your miracle is one praise away. Your miracle is one praise away. But Brother John, I've been beaten. Brother John, I'm in chains. Brother John, I feel like I'm in a septic tank. Brother John, I've been abused. But I'm here to tell you, if you can pray and praise them in your midnight hour. God will do it suddenly. God will shake those bars. God will shake off those shackles. God will set your family free. Begin to praise him. 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 Somebody say, I've got to have a midnight miracle. I need a couple of my ushers to come.